Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We are going to continue our Glory and Redemption series. Uh, And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the book of Genesis. And we are going to be in Genesis chapter 38. Now, some of you maybe thought because we finished Genesis and the story of Joseph last week that we would be done with Genesis. No, we're going to do a little bit of a rewind because we've got one other brother to talk about today. Joseph is by far the most important in the unfolding of the Old Testament and the story of glory and redemption that God has for his people because it is through Joseph that God preserves the chosen people of Israel and it is through Israel ultimately that we will see Jesus. God's glory revealed the redemption of mankind provided for and so uh, Joseph is by far the most important. And so when we get to the end of the story of Joseph, if you remember last week, we realize that Joseph tells his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. That the very same circumstances that men planned for evil, God was planning for the good of his people. God was planning for the redemption of many and the life of many to happen. And so when we look through our lives and we see things that are without question evil perpetrated by mankind, sometimes we struggle with how can God be in that? And we must take the teaching of Joseph, the life of Joseph, and understand that even in the deepest of dark places, God is at work that his hand will not fail, his plans for redemption are sure, and he desires to use every circumstance of our lives and the lives of those around us to bring others to redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. And so even the bad things we see in this world, the evil we see in this world, in the hands of a loving and gracious God, is a tool for salvation, is a tool to bring life for many. And we... we, We can see that in Jesus himself, God incarnate, who lived a perfect and sinless life, who through the evil machinations and schemes of mankind was crucified on a cross, and yet that was always the Father's plan. Why? So that in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I, following that greatest evil of all time, the crucifixion of God incarnate, you and I could be redeemed and God had something good planned the whole time in that evil. And so that's why the cross, an instrument of torture, becomes a symbol of life and hope for us as Christians. So we've talked about Joseph and we got to the end of Genesis and it felt like we were done and we'll get to Exodus next week and uh, the man Moses that God uses. But let's rewind a little bit and look at one of the other brothers and it's maybe important to know first all of the brothers of Joseph, the 12 sons of Israel whose name was changed or was uh, changed from Jacob. So these are the 12 sons that, that God gave Jacob who was changed to Israel And these men become the the standouts, the leaders of different tribes of Israel. And so 
If you and I are remembering our, our, our church history, our, our Bible history, we understand that each of these men over the course of time has lots of kids and those kids gather together in these family groups and have uh, different areas of Israel that they end up habitating. So the 12 sons of Jacob who would be changed to Israel, they were Reuben, his firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, who was fourth in line, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and then finally, the 11th son, the one that we spent so much time on last week, is Joseph. He is the, the second youngest of the sons, and his, the youngest of the sons is Benjamin, his brother, who was born, it, it looks like, a full six years after Joseph. And so when we look at the history of the life of Jacob, who becomes Israel, we see that Reuben, through Joseph, it seems that they were all born in just seven years. So 11 brothers born in seven years. And some of you are very quickly going, wait, that doesn't work. Now we have to remember that Jacob, who becomes Israel, he had two wives, Leah the first, and Rachel, her younger sister, who, is, who he actually wanted to be married to, that he ends up married to. And then both of those women had handmaids or slaves that they gave to him as wives or concubines in order to have more children in their name. And so when you have four women over the course of seven years, to get 11, actually 12 children, because there's a daughter in the mix here that's mentioned as well, to get 12 children out of four women in seven years, the math becomes a little bit easier. Now, the first four, uh, they, they came pretty quickly in succession, just you know, as fast as children can come. You know there's at least that, that nine-month and a little bit buffer. Uh, and some of you have maybe experienced that in your own life or in the lives of others around you where you think you're good for another few years and then all of a sudden God gives you something, another child, much, much sooner than you expected. And, and so uh, we, we see these, these 12, 11 of them born in just seven years. Benjamin born about six years later in the promised land. And uh, all of them have different personalities. They all have different ways of dealing with, with uh, circumstances and issues. And, and what we see is over the course of time, Simeon and Levi, uh, we get a story that tells about how they disobeyed their father. Their, daughter, uh, their sister, Dinah, had been violated by a, a local ruler's son, and they didn't take kindly to it, and they took and went and, and wiped out that ruler and his son and all the men in their town against their father's wishes. So Simeon and Levi earned by their actions their father's disdain. He did not bless them as they expected later in life. And then Reuben, the oldest, he actually later in life sneaks in and spends some time with one of his father's concubines. Um, and that was a, a disgrace upon his family. And so Reuben had made some pretty bad choices in regard to his father as well. Uh, and that kind of brings us to the fourth son, Judah. And, and we see Judah, this fourth son, he's highlighted in this chapter in Genesis 38, and we get a little bit more detail about him. And then when, when Israel blesses his sons and, and prophesies over them, foretells what God will do in them, uh, we see that Judah actually receives a very unique prophecy. And so 
a little bit more history in relation to Joseph and his story. In chapter 37, Judah is the one who advocates for selling Joseph into slavery. If you remember the story of Joseph, he went out to meet his brothers out as they were tending the flocks. They threw him in a pit, a cistern, a, a, a well, if you will, and um, they had intended to kill him, but Judah sees slave traders going by and says, I got a better idea. Let's get 20 pieces of silver out of this kid, and they sell Joseph into slavery. All the brothers conspire together to trick their father into believing that Joseph is dead. But about 22 years later, we see that Judah actually is the one who stood up for the littlest brother, Benjamin, when he believed that Joseph was putting him in danger. And so Judah kind of makes a little bit of a switch as he matures over about 22 years and goes from the one who wants to get rid of a little brother to one who protects a younger brother. And uh, so when we get to Genesis chapter 38, it is in Scripture to give us a picture of who Judah is, and it is all centered around his interaction with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 38. We're going to be going through just a couple bites at a time through this chapter to help us understand what God is trying to teach us and show us in this chapter. And then we're going to flip a little bit later in Genesis to see what God's big plans for Judah and his descendants are. So in Genesis chapter 38, some, some uh, background. We know this occurs sometime in the 22 years that Joseph is in Egypt. So what scripture tells us is that Joseph is sold into slavery when he is 17, that uh, he spends 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner, and then he's raised up to second in command after those 13 years. Seven years of plenty follow, so that is 20 years, and then by the time Judah moves to Egypt with the rest of his family is another two years. So there are 22 years between the time that Judah and his other brothers decide to sell Joseph into slavery and the time they go down to Egypt. And so this story happens sometime in those 22 years. Now some of you might be looking and going, okay, well the chronology says it happens just as Joseph is being sold into the household of Potiphar. What's interesting about Old Testament historical literature is it will tell a whole story that will lapse over a number of years and then rewind and begin another story that happens at the same time as the story that was previously told. So many of you, you're, we're used to watching a movie, and the movie, there'll be a cut scene, you know, where it'll go, boom, over here, and at the same time, boom, over here, you know, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, and so we, we get this picture of these things happening at the same time as we read them at the same time or watch them at the same time, but in the Old Testament, it will tell a whole story out and then go back to a, a certain time period and begin to tell a different story that occurred during the same time period as the previous story. So I say all that to say, just because it says that all of this happened in chapter 38, and then chapter 39, we seem to go back a number of years, well, that's the case. That's how the Old Testament tends to tell stories. And so this is the whole story of these 22 years 
of Judah. Now, we think Judah was probably about four or five years older than Joseph. And so Judah is in his 20s, early 20s, when this time frame begins. And by the time this story ends, he could be as old as in his mid-40s. So just to give you a picture of how this unfolds over time, in concurrence with the lifetime of Joseph in Egypt. And this whole story is offered as a counterpoint to the life of Joseph. See, Joseph, we see, as we looked at him last week, he was faithful. When Potiphar's wife came to him and said, would you sleep with me? What's his answer? No, I'm not going to do that to Potiphar, and I'm not going to sin against my God. That Joseph, even though he was in a position where it was expected of him, where it would have been perfectly acceptable culturally for him to do it, he stands up and says, I will honor God. Now, Judah is a completely different man. And his response to similar temptations, many of them of his own making, it's different. And it stands completely in counterpoint against Joseph's story to make clear just how exceptional God was in the life of Joseph and how exceptional a man Joseph was. So let's begin by looking at chapter 38 in Genesis, verses 1 through 5. So if we read together, we look and it says this. It says, at that time, and what time is it? Well, it's telling us right after Joseph is sold into slavery. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kerzeb that she gave birth to him. So these first five verses set the stage for Judah's life. He decides to leave his brothers to go off into a different area of the promised land to begin to hang out with pagans, to begin to live a lifestyle where he gave in to the culture around him and fell in love with a foreign woman, which would have been against his family's wishes, and has three sons with her. Now, it, <laughs> excuse me, Scripture doesn't tell us her, her name. It says she was the daughter of Shua. So, uh, who knows what her name, and then the three sons that she bears to Judah, they're Er, Onan, and Shelah. So, what great names, if you're looking for a name for a kid uh, or a dog, there you go. We've got, you know, pet names, kids' names, however spiritual you want to be, right? So, here's the stage then. Judah has run off. He's kind of abandoned his heritage, and he is pursuing his own life in the midst of pagan peoples. And then in verses 6 and 7, it kind of get a little bit of a time jump because we get from these three boys being born to now the first and the oldest of them is being, the, being a wife is being found for him. So uh, verses 6 and 7, it says this, uh, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. So we, we, we see what's happening, that Judah finds himself uh, in a foreign land. He's got three sons, and it's time for his youngest, or excuse me, his oldest to get married. So he finds the oldest son a wife, 
And then that oldest son is wicked in God's eyes, and God kills him. What, what a strong counterpoint to Joseph. What do we see about Joseph? It says that everything that Joseph did prospered because God blessed him. It was God who gave Joseph success. Now, Judah and his family, we see them walking in wickedness, and what's God's response? He kills him. He kills Ur. So, so then we get to the next step here, verses 8 through 10. So then Judah says to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. So we get this clear picture of the second son of Judah is tasked with giving his brother an heir. Now, some of you might go, that's weird. Why would, why would that be something that would happen? And it, it's a, a practice called leveret marriage. And, and, and Levere's the, the name in, for brother. And it, it was that if your oldest child died and the, his wife was a widow, it was the second son's duty to help produce an offspring so that his older brother's name and inheritance might stay in the family. And, and that's, it, it's that simple. And, and it's not just something that was cultural. It's actually biblical. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, God tells his people, the Israelites, after the exodus from Egypt and their 40 years of wandering in the desert, God tells them, if a man dies without an heir, his brother is to help his widow have a child who will be his heir. So we maybe look at it and go, no thanks, I don't even like my sister-in-law, or I don't even like my brother-in-law, that's not happening. But, but understand, this wasn't about like, it was about preserving the family line. It was about making certain that land and wealth continued in the family. And some of you are already still thinking, that doesn't matter. We could go poor. I don't, it doesn't even matter. That ain't happening. But, but this was a, an important part of preserving the culture, preserving the people of God. And so it was Onan's duty to give his sister-in-law a male child. Now, What's interesting about him is that he takes advantage of the responsibility to his own pleasure, but he does not fulfill the responsibility. You see, it doesn't say he avoided her and ran away every time he saw her. It says he was intimate with her and then did not finish the duty. Does, right, so just read the verse again if you're not getting what I'm saying. I know. Yeah, y'all are bright folk. I just, sometimes, I, too many years in youth ministry where you got to like draw pictures. And I'm, there's no pictures today, right? No pictures today. So Onan, Onan is taking advantage of his responsibility. He's getting all the pleasure and fulfilling none of the duty, and God kills him for this evil. Now, this is not a passage, never mind. Anyway, good choice. Yeah, once again, too many years in youth ministry, so um, 
let's move on. So two sons of Judah, two sons of Judah have been wicked in the eyes of God, killed. Now what kind of example has their father set? Probably a not a very good one, right? If you end up with, with two wicked children, now we know that children aren't always perfect offshoots of their fathers and mothers, but oftentimes we see what is in them was stuff that was in us. And we see Judah having these two sons who walk in such wickedness before God that they're killed by God. And then verse 11 tells us the next step in the story. And, and you can imagine what it is, right? If the first son dies, the second son is supposed to do the duty. If the second son dies, the third son is supposed to step in. Now, it says that Shelah, he was a little bit too young at this point. But verse 11, we see Judah making a promise. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So Shelah has promised to Tamar that she, he might give an heir for Ur eventually, but in the back of Judah's mind, he's thinking, it's not my boys. My boys were good boys. It's got to be this woman. It's this woman's fault. It's Tamar's fault that my boys are dead. When scripture is very clear, it was the boys' choices that led to their death. So verse 12 then gives us the next stage where Tamar is waiting for Shelah to grow up that the duty of the brother-in-law might be fulfilled so that she can bear an heir for Judah and his family. And it says this, after a long time, and uh, this translation, I didn't love it as much because literally it says, and there were many days. Now, that could be a long time, or that could be a week and a half. You know, it just uh, depends on your perspective, right? But a, a, a period of time passes, many days, and Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. So the story continues to unfold. Judah's wife dies. He mourns for her the appropriate amount of time. And then he and his best friend, they go up to another city in order to participate in the sheep shearing. Now, something you need to know about sheep shearing is that it happens once a year. And when it happens, it's an exciting time because you're you know, wealthy for like a few days. It's like, look at all this. Yes, we have sheared all the sheep. Look at all this wool. Let's party it up. Let's live it up. And so it was common during this time of year for men especially to go out together, to drink heavily, to participate in bad choices with temple prostitutes, and, and to live a less than godly life as they partied up the sheep shearing season. So um, I, I don't know, that'd be kind of like New Year's, I guess, for us or something. But, but it's, it's, just, it's a special holiday where everybody's given the freedom to make stupid decisions. And so that brings us to verses 13 and 14. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, face excuse me, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to, to Anaim, which is on the way to Timnah. 
For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. So Tamar understands time has passed. Shelah's old enough. He still has not been given to her to produce this heir that she has been longing for. And it's the duty of Judah's sons to produce for her. And so she hatches a plan to go out to veil her face and to sit outside the city gates on a, in a town on the way to where she knows her father-in-law is going. So this is her plan. She is going to produce an heir for Ur no matter what it takes. So she is covering herself, sitting at the side of the road, waiting for Judah And we see what happens in verses 15 and following. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And just so you know, that was the common practice for prostitutes in the day, would be to cover their face, to just kind of hide their identity. He went over to her and said, there's no way I would dishonor my God by participating in this. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping, or what will you give me for sleeping with me? And he says, I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. So he was promising an IOU. And she's like, wait a minute. I need some guarantees here. I need some guarantees. And so Judah uh, he, he, he's uh, not so certain. He says, what should I give you? She answered, verse 18, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Now, what Judah left with her was essentially, he pulled out his wallet and gave her everything in it. Okay, that's it, to put it in a modern context. Yeah, I'll pay you with a goat. And she's like, wait a minute. I don't like IOUs here. I'll give you my wallet. And then when I send you the goat, you can give me my wallet back. That is what he did. He gave her his, his, uh, his signet. He gave her his seal. He gave her his staff. And, and it, was, it was essentially everything that identified him as Judah. It was, it was how he would have signed papers. It's, it's how people would have known who he was walking down the road because his staff was carved and ornate and unique to him. His signet and his cord were unique to him. Kind of like the seal that we see in you know, the old medieval movies. You, you put wax on the, on the paper and you put your seal on it. It's that kind of, of thing that he gave her. So he essentially gave her his whole wallet and said, Sure, hold this. I'll get you a goat later. Let's go. So it happens, she becomes pregnant. She got up and left, removed her veil, and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah, saying, I couldn't find her, and besides, the men of the place said there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. 
And so we see Tamar's plan unfold. It was to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into giving her the heir that she, by law, deserved. If Judah was going to withhold from her his youngest son, then, then she had every right to pursue an heir by whatever means she found necessary. We, we see that, that Tamar, well, we in our modern culture, we'd go, ooh, that doesn't seem good. This is something that was within the bounds of her rights because she had no heir for her. And what we see is Judah runs headlong into sin. He had every means by which to continue to fulfill his promises to Tamar. Instead, he ignores her. And when his wife is no longer in the picture, he starts hanging out with with others in sheep shearing season. And Judah willfully and joyfully sins. He hands the prostitute, who he thought was a prostitute, his whole identity, everything about himself, he hands her in order to participate in a, a few moments of pleasure. We see Judah in stark contrast to Joseph. Can you imagine if Joseph had, had given in to the, the request of Potiphar's life, wife, excuse me, did the request of Potiphar's wife, his life might have actually improved. He might have been able to start calling in favors. And you know I'm your favorite slave, right, Potiphar's wife? Woo-hoo! Instead, he stands up and says, I will not sin against God. And Judah, over and over again, in contrast, sins against God, withholds what is due someone else. And now, unbeknownst to himself, He is fulfilling his vows to his daughter-in-law as he chooses to sin. He thinks he's getting off scot-free and just sinning for fun. Now, of course, he can't find Tamar. He can't get his things back. I I, I can imagine he's got to begin the process of, you know, calling the 1-800 numbers and canceling everything. Hey, yeah, uh, signets are us. Can you cancel my signet, please? Yeah, I lost it the other day. Yeah. <laughs> staff world, I need a new staff. Can you cancel my old one? Yes, yes, I'll hold. You know, I mean, just, he has to begin over. And he's to the point where I, I got off scot-free. It doesn't matter. I don't need to worry about it. I sent the goat. I don't need my stuff. Everything's cool. It was just a prostitute. It was no big deal. And then in verses 24, 25, and 26, we see Tamar's plan begin to be fulfilled. This desire to have an heir for Judah, it's already happening, and now her plan comes to pass. Here's what it says. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. What? Are you kidding me? We see that that Tamar's plan, it's fulfilled. She's pregnant. Everyone is starting to see. And we see Judah's hypocrisy on full display. He had gone and consorted with a prostitute. And now his daughter-in-law is pregnant and is accused of the same act that he participated in. And he's like, let's kill her. Now, this is not uncommon. We see it in Scripture where the men of the culture feel like they can get away with everything. And then when the women 
struggle, they get condemned. And it is completely unfair. And it's completely unjust. But here we see Tamar's plan fulfilled. We see Judah showing his hypocrisy. But Tamar was smart. And she knew what was going on. And she knew what she was doing here. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Wow, my wallet just showed up and my daughter-in-law had it the whole time. Wow, how is this? She calls him out. She says, you did not fulfill your promise. And I had to find a way to bring it to fulfillment. And now that you would condemn me, you were the very one who fulfilled the promise. You're the one that God used to bring about these heirs that should have been mine through one of your sons. And so Judah comes to a place here in verse 26 where he says this about Tamar. Judah recognized the things that she sent him and said, she is more in the right than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. Judah recognizes Tamar's right. What she has done is right. And what I have done is not. And so I won't bother her again. Now, she wanted to bear an heir for Ur. That's fun to say, right? An heir for Ur, an heir for Ur. You could make a little Sunday school song about that if it weren't for the uncomfortable facts of this story. (laughs) Right? She wanted an heir for Ur. And it turns out, not only is, is she providing an heir for Ur, but she is bearing two sons to Judah himself. And so her sons are even more significant than they should have been because they are not just the sons of a son, but they are the sons of Judah himself. And so they become part of his direct lineage. And we see these two sons born in verses 27 through 30. And, and so it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, out came his brother, and she said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. So two babies... In the course of giving birth, one of them just goes, sticks his hand out, they tie a red string around it, and then it disappears. And then the second child is born, and he pushes his way out. He's the second born child, but he physically in totality comes out first. And then the first born, who just decided to hang around a little bit longer, I guess, he comes out second. But he's the first born, because, you know... And so we have this birth of twins, Zerah, whose name means brightness, and we think it referred to the scarlet thread that was tied on his wrist, and then Perez, whose name means breaking out. He's the second child, maybe it wasn't like, and then wanting to hang out, but his his, his little brother grabbed his arm, pulled it back, and they're like, me first. (laughs) 
And, and so these twins are born. The oldest kind of disappears into, into biblical history, but the second one, the second one born to Tamar, who had tricked her father-in-law Judah into giving her these children, the second one, he's actually in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus is like his great, 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 you get the picture, grandson. And so what happens here is we see God using circumstances that we go like, what? And people who are second born and less than in order to bring about his perfect plans of redemption for his people. And then kind of fast forward real quick. Jacob, and is, Jacob, whose name is Israel, he blesses his sons in Genesis 49, verses 1 through 28. And we won't read all of that, but we see chapter 49, it begins to tell us, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather around and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. So in, in Genesis 49, Jacob, Israel, he begins to prophesy over his sons and bless them and tell them what will happen in their lives. And so here's what he says to Reuben, his oldest. Reuben, verse 3, you are my firstborn, my strength and the first fruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water. You will not excel because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it. You got into my bed. So Israel says to Reuben, everything about you screams power and dominance and and excellence. But because of what you did, you will not excel. You will will not be prominent amongst your brothers. You, You will not be anyone of note other than one of the sons of Israel. And then, then he starts to talk to the, the next two. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men. And on a, hamstr- and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Verse 7, their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. He says to the next two, because of the violence that they perpetrated in the name of their father, he says, you will be dispersed throughout Jacob, scattered throughout Israel. What we see is that Simeon is a, a pretty much a no-name no, no tribe, and Levi, they don't even get to be a tribe in the classic sense. They are scattered out all throughout Israel to be essentially the priests and the caretakers of the faith all throughout the land of Israel. So he says to his first three boys, you guys have all messed up. You're not going to be blessed. But then we get to Judah in the next verse. Verse 8, he begins to bless Judah and prophesy over Judah. Now, you and I, we've, we've just reviewed what, what Judah did in, verse, in chapter 38, right? Judah is not a good guy. Judah has been selfish. Judah has been sin-pursuing. Judah has compromised with the culture over and over again. And yet as we come to the end of Israel's life and he's blessing his sons, here is what he says about Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. That's a little bit of a play on words. Judah's name meant praise. 
And so when Israel says his brothers will praise him, he's, he's playing a little bit on Judah's name and saying, your brothers are going to lift you up just like your mother praised God for you when you were born. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Israel says, Judah, you are going to be strong. You are going to be prominent. You are going to be like a, a roaring lion. You will rule over your brothers. You will, you will be the king over all of my children. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet. In other words, you, Judah, you will always rule or one of your descendants will always be ruling over your brothers and their descendants until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. In other words, right here, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 Israel prophesies over his son Judah and says, you and your descendants will be king over all the people of Israel, but there will come a day where someone's going to come along and his right will be such that he will declare him uh, or declare that the obedience of all the people belong to him. He will be king over everyone, not just the children of Israel, not just your brother's kids, but everyone. And there's going to come a day where a man will come from your line, come from your progeny, who will be king over everything. Next thing he says in verses 11 and 12, it says, He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. If you remember, triumphal entry, the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the Sunday prior to his crucifixion, he rides a donkey and has beside him the colt of a donkey. And we see this prophecy in Genesis 49 fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one who would come to whom everyone would owe obedience. Now what do we know about Judah? He's not the kind of guy who deserves this. He isn't the kind of, of man who deserves to have a promise like this, that from you will come the Messiah, the Savior. And yet God chooses this broken, disobedient, foolish man and says, through you, I'm going to do great things and save the whole world. And that man that is to come, that king who will rule and, and will claim the obedience of everyone. We know him as Jesus, son of Judah, son of David, son of God. Now, Jesus, in, in the New Testament, he has two genealogies. If you remember what a genealogy is, it's a listing of so-and-so had this child, had this child, had this child, had this. You know, and it gets us to the person we're talking about. Luke has a genealogy for Jesus in which he lists... Uh, uh, all kinds of generations. Matthew, the genealogy for Jesus goes all the way back to Adam. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we're going to see someone specifically listed in the lineage of Jesus. And, and, and I want you to, to look at this. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by who? Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram. This very woman 
who's the center of the story in Genesis chapter 38, is among only four women listed in the lineage of Jesus. All the rest are men. And why? She, she is a woman, she's a foreigner, she's not Jewish. She has these crazy circumstances surrounding the birth of these two children to Judah. And yet God says she's important enough, I want you to know that Jesus came from her. Jesus came from her, this, this woman who had to pretend to be a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into giving her a child or two. <laughs> she's so important we want you to know that Jesus came for her, from her. And when we look at this whole list, actually, this whole list of people, Judah, Tamar, Israel himself, we see in this list of people in Jesus' lineage, over and over we see people who are deceivers and liars. We see prostitutes. Rahab is going to come up in Jesus' lineage, and we'll talk about her more later adulterers, idolaters, the whole list of, of forebears, the people that Jesus comes from, do you know the one thing that ties them all together? They're all sinners. They're all sin- Now, why would I say something like that? It is not to disparage the lineage of our Savior. It is instead to say, when we read this story about Judah and Tamar and see what God did, when we see the man Judah, who was just a chump, And then what God chose to do through him over the course of time, we see that God takes really messed up, really broken people, and he still uses them. And so I want to encourage you this morning, when we read about Tamar, when we read about Judah, when we see what God over the course of time did through them, to to hang on to some truths, number one, your past sin doesn't prevent future glory when you walk in submission to your God. There is nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven that God might redeem you and use you for the redemption of others. Nothing in your past can keep you from being used by God if you repent and confess and come to Christ. Nothing in your past can prevent you from being used. So Christian, it doesn't matter what you've done. God can use even you to bring salvation into the life of someone else. If he can use Judah and Tamar, he can use us. And then when we look at Jesus, in the whole lineage of Jesus, it is full of sinners. It's full of deceivers and liars and idolaters. And some of us look at where we came from, and we say to ourselves, I can't be anything more than what I am. I'm just like my mom. I'm just like my dad. I'm just like my granddad. I mean, some of us, you know, well, I'm Irish, so I'm going to fight all the time. (sighs) Really? I'm Italian, so, you know, I'm going to womanize. Come on. Nothing in your heritage limits your usefulness in the plans of God for redemption. Save your unwillingness to be used. That's it. It doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. It doesn't matter the sin issues in, in their past. There is nothing about who they were that will dictate who you have to be. I mean, if that's the case, 
Jesus comes from Judah. What a jerk. Why isn't Jesus a jerk? Jesus comes from, from Tamar, who's willing to trick her father-in-law into sleeping. Ew! Right? But nothing about that heritage keeps Jesus from being our Messiah, the king over creation, the one who would redeem us. And if that's true, then there's nothing in your heritage. It doesn't matter what your parents did. It doesn't matter what grandpa was. It doesn't matter none of it. Because when you come to Christ, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he can use you, even you, to bring about the redemption of someone else. To introduce them to Jesus. To proclaim reconciliation to them. The Apostle Paul says it like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through the beginning of 6. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Your past sins... Don't preclude you. Don't keep you from being used by God. Your family's sins, your heritage, the things that you have defined yourselves by, they don't keep you from being used by God. He has made you new. He has made you competent. A little bit later, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. Not just a pig with some lipstick, but a brand new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus himself came from liars and deceivers like Judah, idolaters, pagans like Tamar. And yet God in his glory still chose to use them to bring about redemption. He can use you. It doesn't matter your story. It doesn't matter your foibles. It doesn't matter your shortcomings. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are made new and you too can be used. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 21 encourages us with this. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All those negative things that you would define yourself by, They were laid on Jesus Christ so that you could define yourselves by new words, righteous, holy, usable in the hands of God when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so that's really what the crux of it is, is that when we look at what God did through Judah and Tamar, it gets us to Jesus. And so the only answer for all of this is Jesus and understanding some truths about ourselves. We were created by God for relationship, but all of us in our sinful selfishness rebelled against God. We have chosen our own way of doing things. We have stood up against him and said, I will not follow you like you deserve. It began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but we have participated as individuals since then. And we have earned for ourselves by living in such a way death and the wrath of God, but God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. 
Jesus, the Son of God, perfectly God, perfectly man, who lived a perfect, sinless life. Even though he was from the lineage of deceivers and liars and sinners, God had used them to bring him to be so that he could live a perfect life and die on the cross. And in dying on the cross, he took for you the wrath of God. He paid for you the price of death that you earned by sinning against God, rebelling against God, choosing your own way. But he didn't stay dead. He came down off of that cross. He was buried. And three days later, he came back to life. He rose again by the power of God to prove he really is who he says he is and can really do what he says he can do. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate who can forgive your sins when you confess and give you new life when you trust on him as your king. And so our choice today is, will we trust in Jesus and will we believe that like the story of Judah and Tamar, that God can take something of terrible wickedness and and selfishness and twisting up things in our past and turn it into something beautiful? Will we believe that God can use us? And so it it begins with just a a simple place of confessing your need for a Savior, confessing your sinfulness, confessing that you understand that there's a loving and holy God that you have rebelled against and that you deserve death and wrath, but confessing that you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then repenting of the sin, the wrong that you've done, turning away from it. Stop doing it. You know, that was one of Judah's biggest issues is he kept diving headlong into the things he wanted instead of walking with God. And we have got to not just say we're wrong, not just say we've sinned, but be willing to turn around and and do, do differently. Walk with God in obedience and then believe with our whole heart and our whole life. Too often we think belief is just, yeah, that's true. But when we read scripture, you must understand that genuine belief in Jesus Christ is not saying that what he has said is true, but instead leaning on him, putting your whole weight on him, like you're sitting in a chair now, trusting Jesus with your whole life the same way you're trusting that chair. To confess, to repent, to believe, and then in every aspect of life to trust God. His plans are perfect. His ways are true and sure. And he really can use somebody like you or like me. People with terrible pasts, sin-laden choices, but who have confessed our sin, repented of our wrongdoing, believed on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He can use us if we walk in daily trust of him. Which means maybe that person at Starbucks that you see every day, you really could be used to share the gospel with them. Maybe the cashier who's your favorite cashier, you know when they're on and you walk through their line, you could be used to share the gospel. The person in the cubicle next to you, they eat that stinky lunch every day. You know that one, right? You could even be used to reach them, your own children, your parents, your friends and relatives. God can use even you because the truth of everything that we've learned today is your past sin doesn't prevent future glory. It doesn't keep God from being able to work in your life. When you confess and repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And your heritage does not limit your usefulness in the plans of God for redemption. It doesn't matter what kind of family you've come from. It doesn't matter what kind of culture you've come out of. 
God can use even you. And so, today, as we look at the story of Judah and Tamar, as we look at the prophecy of Israel over the life of Judah, we see that God chooses to use even those people that seem unusable in order to bring about his plans for redemption. Let's pray together, and then we'll close in a song. Father God, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for this this truth that you've given to us, that you have always intentionally and graciously used less than perfect people to bring about the perfect plans of your son, to bring about the perfect redemption that comes only through him. And so today, as we look at this story, as we look at this history, I pray that we would all be inspired to know that there is nothing that we have done that will keep us from being usable in your hands. There is nothing that we have come from that stains us in such a way that you cannot wash us clean and use us to bring redemption into the lives of someone else as we share your gospel. Today, help us to find confidence in this fact that in Christ we are clean. In Christ we are usable. In Christ our history does not determine our future. And in Christ, our heritage does not determine our destination. Thank you. Thank you for making something out of people even like me. Today, Lord, would you convict us of the places where we continue to walk in rebellion? Would you empower us to share your good news with the people who need to hear it. And in all of this, would you be glorified? Your glory is worth all of this as we know you seek our redemption. In the precious name of our Savior, who comes from the line of Judah through Tamar and Perez, in his name, the Savior that you gave us who came from imperfect people and yet was himself perfect. In his name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Can't go back to the beginning Can't control what tomorrow will bring But I know here in the middle Is the place where you promised to be Not enough Unless you come Will you meet me here again? It's all I want, it's all you are, when you meet me here again. As I walk now through the valley, 
come to Christ and you meet him daily you get to that point where you rejoice 
Your past does not define you. Your heritage does not define who you are. But as you walk with him, you find a new you, a new creation made to do amazing things because of his faithfulness, because of his power, because of his love and strength within you. May it be so for all of us in ever-increasing ways this week and in the weeks to come. God bless you guys. Join in. Women's Bible Studies, Wednesday night at 6.30 in the downstairs room. Students, 7th through 12th grade, Thursday nights at 6, down in the youth room. And then, of course, Sunday Bible School next Sunday morning. We've got great classes for everybody. Doctrine and Bible and ladies' discussion for the adults and kids' classes for all the ages. So God bless you guys. Consider how you might continue to grow in your faith by becoming more and more engaged in the life of the church and in the life of those around you as you share Jesus. God bless.